What is good, everybody? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. Today, we're gonna to be talking about the Kinevin Framework with Will Greenberg. If you're not familiar with this, it's gonna be a good one because as you look through coaching, if you look through everything, the biggest thing that we gotta to start to become more comfortable with is the fact that a lot of the environments we're being placed in are very complex and we have to find the best solution for that problem and the can framework is a great model to use for that if you are not familiar we have all of our content web shows articles resources modules at phpodcast.com so you get access to all of that good good if you're a member so subscribe today you get access to all of our web shows videos resources and much much more so become a member today at phpodcast.com and you will become the probably best coach you even ever could imagine all right guys let's talk about the Kinevin framework let's hit it okay tim we got Kinevin framework on the board here and basically just hit us with what is it it's kind of a weird word so give us the background here yeah it so i got the original construct from will greenberg one of our co-hosts who will be talking about more of this and we've actually done a podcast on this already and it was like more about quality control where will just kind of went into a tangent on Kinevin. so I think this is probably going to be a really interesting one to unpack, but it's also relevant, right? We've talked about Newell's. We've talked about Ericsson's and a lot of that's based off of constraints. This is no different. The only difference would be it's, you know, just what is it in terms of organizing and structuring what you're doing based off of this pretense of, is it complex? And I'm kind of going through my notes here. So pardon if I'm looking at the screen, but it's enabling constraints that are loosely coupled. Then you have complicated, which is governing constraints that are tightly coupled. And then you have chaotic, which is lacking constraints that's decoupled. And then you have clear, tightly constrained and degrees of freedom. Again, the root word is constraints, right? So how are we toggling constraints up or down to organize and structure things? And this is more about a practice design, right? So if I was looking at organizing a meeting, organizing a teaching session, organizing a weight training session, organizing a practice, how do I want to toggle up and down constraints to essentially create environments based off what the organism can handle? So if I look at it from the context of, and this is something I kind of went on a rant on the, the Newell's model one of, I, I don't know why, but the algorithm's just pumping to me all this open, very, very lack of progression, just kind of violently doing novel things on social media. And that would be an example of potentially a complex or chaotic training program. And there's a whole notion that we lived in chaotic worlds, right? So if you're not familiar with this law of thermodynamics called entropy, that we're always moving to a gradual state of chaos and nothing is organized. It's moving to a more gradual state of more disorganization. And then we start to look at it from, we work with open systems that procure energy from the outside world. So the notion it's since we are so complex and entropy is inevitable, we should train that way. And we should mirror that that natural order, that this three-dimensional, unpredictable, constant variance never really have any uniformity from anything that we do in what we train. That's a nice thought. It really is. It's definitely something that as you start to think about it of, wow, okay, like it, it, it makes kind of loose logic to me. Problem is, it's very unquantifiable and there's nothing tangible you can take from it. And the idea is we're going towards complex, open variant, op, op, multivariate environments with competitions, games, and practices in a lot of ways. And there's still a lot of constraints involved. So that would be probably more of a complicated structure in reality based off of their sidelines and end zones. There's, there's rules to limit certain aspects of the game. So it's not completely chaotic and it's somewhat complex between a start and finish of a play, but it's not absolute complexity so it's probably more complicated in some regards but the the idea that training needs to mirror this complete variance of of this and it's funny because one of the things that is ironic when you look at it of you know we, we live in a perpetual state of chaos so we should train in chaos is they are essentially doing complicated structures with 
overloading certain patterns redundantly, right? So we're going to do random things, holding onto a med ball or putting a band on or adding some sort of degree of loss of freedom of movement or increased freedom of movement or control or volatility of what we're doing. So that in a sense is this, I guess, misguided notion that it's absolutely chaotic and and it's probably a little bit more constraint than they really realize. Anytime we're at external load, we're adding a constraint, really, when you think about it, because we have to self-organize and adapt to that external load. It's not this completely fluid and open environment. It's not like we're in space without gravity. We have gravity constantly pulling us down. When you add some sort of external load, it increases the demand of gravity. And I find that that we can get so married to this notion that what we're doing is this, you know, end all be all and that if we constantly stay in this perpetual state of chaos that we're doing a better job than people that are overly structured and and rigid with what they do in training programs i've used a very 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 stringent progression no matter what like hey Corey, nice to meet you we're gonna open up a couple scots regardless of whatever it is that i know about you versus hey Corey, nice to meet you we're just gonna do a bunch of open-sided games and let you react and and see what happens. And either way, you feel justified because you're probably walking away from there, challenged in some way, stimulated in some way, tired in some way, or fatigued in some way. And you're like, yeah, I'm a good coach. The problem is, is none of that means anything unless you have something to justifiably show what you did was beneficial to that athlete or client. And that's where I get hung up on. It's, yes, we can look at Kinevin as a model of chaos, complex, overly structured, and or simple, and then complicated are all facets of, of any practice design. And in any moment, we want to potentially pull the levers to reach in that area. And Will will talk a little bit more about why, but you know, the notion that it has to be this binary thing that we absolutely have to be one or the other, or not really have any crossover, I think is misguided. But the reality is it has to manifest and unfold and unpack into something tangibly better than what we started with. And if you can justify overly chaotic training environments and it leads to a net positive, right? Because a lot of times we'll talk about injury pre injury prevention with nothing really tangible to show from it, right? There's nothing that you can definitively say from a chaotic-based training program is more effective at reducing the risk of injury other than anecdotal or logic that has yet to be determined as true, comparatively speaking to a simple program that's extremely high constraint and focus on external load and a very rigid structured pattern, right? And that's the problem. It's, you know, there's evidence and then there's potential. And I think the problem with the folks that rely overly on potential and use their misguided logic are the ones that are probably the most dangerous because that looks novel and interesting to the layman's and a person that has no real semblance of what's good versus bad. Where an expert, anytime they try to criticize, it will be, you know, rigid or stagnant or stuck in their place. Like I just, I'm governed by a different set of rules than you are. Cause I actually have to keep people uninjured and get them better. And unfortunately your, your world that you've created of a bunch of people that are agreeing with you. And there was like a issue where I hit a head where I, talked about band assisted jumps is probably just a bad idea it doesn't really net accomplish much and you're relying overly on a band that's made in a probably part of the world that's not really that vested into quality control and you see that unfold and unpack with people tearing bands by just doing a simple hamstring stretch over and over and we're going to do violent ballistic activities with a band that's probably not well designed or structured with elite level athletes that have millions of dollars at stake suspended suspending themselves six feet into the air like yeah no i'm not taking that risk like and it goes back to what mike boyle would always say it's like if you're doing sledgehammer and they missed a tire and they hit their shin and you had to go to a court of law and justify why you made that decision and they say well i'm training core and they bring in another expert and that judge asked that expert is there any other way to train core besides hitting a sledgehammer into a tire yes you're you're an idiot you know like it has a, any potential for risk like that I think there's a complete that. And then it, it basically got circulated of, you know, I'm kind of soft or I got accused of wearing white gloves or I called a helicopter coach, I guess was the, the term. And I think when you start to evaluate it, I actually look at that as a compliment because it actually means that I actually take pride in keeping people safe. And I objectively think about what the risk and consequences of certain actions are. 
versus just doing chaotic stuff. And, you know, the unfortunate aspect, it's you know, novelty and, and nuance probably is a little bit more attention grabbing versus just chop wood, carry water, hard work, dedication, simple things done violently well over a long period of time is probably not as attractive, but that's what moves the needle and that's what changes performance. And that's what changes the, the aspects of what high performance athletes and high performance people really need, which go back to the Sinephra network. It's, you know, I think it's really easy to lock yourself into any one of those quadrants and typecast you where I think the smart ones realize that you're strategic when you go to chaotic, you're strategic when you go to complex, you're strategic when you're going simple, you're strategic when you're going complicated. But really the bottom line to answer your question directly, it's just about layering in constraints or taking away constraints and finding what the response to that is. And hopefully it leads into net better performance. So as we're thinking about our strategies into when to surf through the different quadrants, is there anything we should be looking for? Like, hey, this key, we should get more complex or we need to get a little more complicated or a little more simple? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things I like about complex is it's a great proxy to all the stuff that you are doing. And if you're going to strip away the coaches, even from a leadership perspective, so I think there's another way to think about this. You know, the we need more leaders. We need our we need our players and our captains to step up generic lines in college football, right? We, we constantly preach and harp on, we need our best players to be our best leaders. Now the issue would be is we never put them in situations where they have to lead, right? They're always very regimented and structured to the constraints we place on the environment. Start on time. I'm going to absolutely annihilate someone if they show up three minutes late or if they miss a rep, like I am the enforcer of all this stuff. And, peer-to-peer evaluation, accountability, having some sort of a semblance of, of more of this Americratic type of structure where we rely on everybody to lead and hold a, hold a standard versus the other end of it, you know, we, we create these like very structured, clear environments that are extremely simple to process. And it's almost to a degree overly structured like the the concept where you learn from peer-to-peer or this team of teams and the breaking down of Taylorism of everything everyone has a part and everyone does a role and no one ever breaks outside that role versus a more evolved organic model to fight different types of combat that are going to be more guerrilla in style and uh, broken up into less structure and organized of this peer-to-peer or this horizontal leadership structure and when it plays out from a concept of working with a team and you have either a standard distribution of probably 15 seniors, 50 freshmen, and then probably somewhere in the middle, like 30 and 30 sophomores, juniors, that creates a weird setup of majority of your team is in the novice or entry level of your career or the beginning part of their career in college football and has a big influence on, Hey, we have to have these 15 people be really big leaders, but their collective reach is probably pretty small. So you as a head coach or a strength coach or a football coach probably become overly, overly like structured and make very clear and concise rules that our freshmen and sophomores can execute on very clearly. The problem would be is our seniors who've heard this song and dance for the last four years are probably less inclined to need that type of leadership and need more of a equal footing. And they are more of your essentially boots on the ground lieutenants, as opposed to, you know, there's a general and a bunch of foot soldiers. Am I saying that correctly, Corey? That seems right. Right. Like a, like a more top down yeah, hierarchy. Sure. Just, yeah. No, it's, you know, you get it. It's I worked at West Point. Good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Good enough. Good enough. Yeah. You get it. But with that being said, yeah. it's all right. Maybe that's the concept to go into. We need to start creating less, less boundaries of clear control and, and constraints on the environment and more of a, let's see how our seniors handle a very unscripted, unpredicted environment, right? The, you know, voluntary period where no one shows up or the 
player-led practice and no one goes through the dynamic warm-up that we wanted to go through or the or the hey we're going to do some bonus work on saturday and people just kind of f around don't really do anything or the getting in and watching extra film or whatever other things that we're going to be reliant on the team to be able to pick up the slack for or help us out because there's not enough time or maybe not enough bandwidth to do it and they come up short because they a lot of times become overly reliant on you top-down leader to create clear expectations for everything and anything they do right they wake up at seven they eat breakfast at seven fifteen. you know military is built off of that right and i think that's the part that's really interesting with this model that we can yeah rely on it as the example i talked about it before of having overly chaotic training programs that are just kind of random ad hoc doing really novel things and you know justifying it as we live in a a very chaotic entropy based world, which is, I think, probably a very small fraction of the way we should be thinking about this. But I think about another way to focus on this would be how you're organizing and structuring your staffs, how you're organizing and structuring your relationship with your players and having a differentiation between a differentiation between your seniors versus your freshmen. Maybe you just have a really mature athlete. Maybe you have a senior that's very immature. You know, there's always these dynamics at play. And you can look at any of these four quadrants and say, I either need to be very clear or I need to be very complex or even need to be chaotic and see how they respond. And you can use it again as a proxy to go, how do they handle that? Did, can we debrief and say what we would do differently and give them actually learned reps to go, hey, this was an area that I didn't really prepare you for, but I wanted to see how you respond. And I'm interested to see why you came up with what you came up with. That's a growth mindset and environment that probably going to help your leaders become better leaders. And as we start to look through any dynamic where you own a business or you're running a strength conditioning program or you have a family or anything that has some sort of we need each other to, mission, to accomplish a mission, you know, there's going to be this hope and I guess intent to accomplish the mission in the most linear fashion possible. But a lot of times we can kind of get in our own way and trip over ourselves by having this very, very clear, structured, high constraint, simple environment that we just, they're going to screw it up. So might as well just, just put a lot of rules and constraints on this versus, hey, I got a senior that knows the right difference between right and wrong. At least we've had that that at least foundational knowledge and we know what we want to accomplish. Let's give them some autonomy on how we want to do this and see what happens. One thing that immediately comes to mind is, is the breakfast tables. You know, Coach Munkin wants us all to put on weight. We got to take mm-hmm. a role at breakfast. So having you or someone from your staff at breakfast taking role and you're like, well, this is a leadership academy. Let's give those seniors the opportunity to do that. That's an example of, uh, of it going really well. Have you ever run mm-hmm. into anything where you, where you got an unexpected result or didn't necessarily go as you thought it would when you, when you did something like that? Yeah, I think that's a part as a leader. Um, ego is a big part of all this, right? Where you want, you always feel in a certain sense of what is your contribution and how, how much do you feel like you're getting or how much credit and how much praise do you deserve, relatively speaking, in the situation, right? And it should be, and a lot of times the, I guess in concert, the amount of blame or risk evolved, right? So Coach Monk and an army, takes on more risk and more more potential for blame if something goes wrong than all of his subordinates, myself included, right? And when you think about that, you know, you go into this, well, I'm a servant-minded leader and yes, everyone's going to get all the credit and all the, all the potential praise and I will take none of the credit and potential praise because I'm just a cog in a wheel and we're all working for mother army football and nothing, no one's opinion or perspective and matters, but it, it doesn't work like that hundred percent because I'm going to get blamed and I'm going to get potentially fired if it goes wrong. Right. So there has to be a conversation around servant minded leaderships kind of bullshit. And it's kind of a stupid premise because it's not the exact two way street of, well, servant minded people still get blamed and get fired. So, you know, if we're going to take, we're going to absolve ourselves from the credit or praise. And we need to at least acknowledge the fact that we're not absolved from the the blame or the responsibility. So like, I find that's a, a two way street, but with that being said, 
is the more confident you are with who you are as a leader and a, and a, a man or a woman, whoever else is, you know, how you identify in terms of like your place in the world, like fatherhood or motherhood or, or being involved with the community and having big structure and like a big impact on the people around you. I think the more comfortable you are with letting people do things and as they start to unpack and unfold their role and just, you know, testing boundaries of how much do you really mean that and intend that. And, and then the other end of it, it's like the, the blame will ultimately fall on me, but the best way I can facilitate and foster your growth and learning, it's letting you make mistakes and then having a conversation about in that situation, should we have done it differently? Or was it the right answer just in the wrong situation? And I think those are two really big fundamental lessons for developing and growing leaders. And one of the things I've always prided myself on, and confidence is never an issue for me, borderline arrogance, I guess, but I'm always really, really, I'm empowered when people are around me facilitated to do things that they feel very confident that I allow them to do. And they do a either really bad, but hopefully better job over time. And I never try to come down on someone. I gave the opportunity to make a decision or give their best take on a moment to go, okay, this is what I thought to do in that situation. I know better now. And hopefully I don't make that mistake again because I want the opportunity again. And as we start to break down, mm -hmm. like, you know, that, like from a leadership perspective, again, I could be overly constrained and overly controlling and make it very clear on what we need to do. But when I start to get from the other end, it basically just creates a whole lot of other stuff that I'm responsible for. And I have ambition to be bigger more than just a role. Like, right. I want to have a bigger concentric circle. I want to reach more people. I want to be more for people outside of the direct sphere that I work with in a college weight room. That's just always been my ambition. And in order for me to do that, I need to be one, confident in myself, but two, I need to be confident in the people around me and allow them and enable them and empower them to make decisions without losing that responsibility and allowing them to grow and nurture this environment of that. But it's extremely complex because I know how I can do it better than if I asked you to do something, I know I could do it better than you right now. That That's clear to me. Right. The issue being it's, your potential to do it better than me because either you're more interested in it, you're more engaged with it, maybe you're just smarter and more talented at it, is to be determined. And we won't know what that potential could be unless we give you the opportunity to do that, which will free me up to do other things that might be more systemic or reach outside of the little bubble that we've created. So the surprise is when someone's given an opportunity, what happens? And you'll see drastic vastly different trajectories, right? The, the one motive it's you're just pawning off work on me and delegating stuff that you don't want to do. On the other end of it, it's you've just given me an opportunity to do something that is really important to this whole entire structure. And there's no job too small. And the symbolism around all of that, that's always a surprise. You don't know what's going to happen. The perception of are you just giving me bullshit work that you don't want to do? Or are you giving me an opportunity that I can prove myself and I'll get more and more? That's always the amazing thing to watch how people perceive that, right? The, the people who feel insulted by getting a seemingly remedial task, right? The, this isn't a generational thing. This is not. Because I was the same way 20 years ago. It's your ego and pride associated with getting these like very nominal tasks, but not associating proving that as a something that you're capable and competent at before you can get a more higher level task. But every person that's entry level in their first job will always perceive everything that's responsibility or task as beneath them. And it takes maturity and humility to realize you're just getting vetted to be able to handle more and having a perspective of, in order for me to give you big responsibility, I need to see and establish that you're capable of doing simple, very easy to execute task. And if you can't, my assumption is you're not capable of doing higher level tasks. But the reality is, is I don't know that a hundred percent. And I'm, I'm typecasting and I'm stereotyping. 
it's maybe not 100% fair. And it's why you still got to do out there and do it. And that's why I think I've been really good at developing coaches. And the tree's pretty robust now, where I've had some people go on extremely prominent and successful careers because of that. And the the instinct and the intuition or the the confidence in myself or the 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 ambition to do more and reach more has always been top of mind. And, you know, that's the thing that I think as we start to look through of that and message I have with my businesses is make me obsolete, which could be perceived in a whole host of ways. And I have an opportunity now to be able to do more remote work and be more of a facilitator to coaches and trainers, not just within my gyms, but within the sphere of performance health. And that to me is what is a really an amazing opportunity, not at the lost sight of the staff that I have working every single day, feeling marginalized or feeling like they've been abandoned or feeling like they don't really have the job that they want. They just basically got a job that they think I didn't want to do, which it's a really important thing to establish and work through. And it's never easy. You never know how people are going to perceive it or start to unpack it. But the truth is, is how people respond to delegating and empowering is always going to be a, a wild card surprise. You know, just, there's never going to be a uniform thing. Right. I mean, whatever you're going to do, do it well. Yeah. And it, it sort of works itself out. So, I mean, if I, if I were to distill this down, it's taking those feedback loops getting feedback, getting those debriefs, and then adjusting the constraints as you work through those debriefs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just giving small, simple tasks is clear. And then as I start to unpack, hey, Corey, we want to start to, un we want to unfold a sports science. We have zero, zero resources, zero budget, zero knowledge, zero, zero experience. Figure it out. That's a very complex thing. And you're the person that has to unpack it, but I'm not giving you or bestowing that opportunity to you unless you show me like you can show up on time, you can coach your racks, that you can help me set up and break down that if I ask you to put body weights in, you do it. And you go, okay, it's not beneath me. It's not a it's not just where I'm the station I'm at in my career and where I'm working and I want to prove myself. So I want those big opportunities. And if for me to get these big, awesome, audacious things like you need to be able to prove yourself and establish yourself with very simple, very repeatable, executable things over a longer period of time. But yeah, absolutely. All right. Dude, sweet. Hell yeah. Dude. Yeah. I, I know Will deep dive on this, so I'm looking yeah. forward to hearing what he has to say. Yeah, I would call him Dr. Will on Sinefra Network, so he's yeah. going to definitely bring it, man. Oh, man, Corey, appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Tim. I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. We got Will here. We're talking about the Kinevin framework not mm. the Sinephrin model which i was gonna be i have to recant everything i said from the first 30 minutes of this so i apologize Kinevin framework pundits out there so will a little little history here our very first podcast we talked about quality control and you just took the reins and went pretty hard into the Kinevin framework so what i want to do is almost have a circle back Let's go through where you're at now relatively with that Kinevin framework. You actually wrote an article about it and you, you've had some time to sit with it and really like understand this framework at a different level. And you're moving into some different components with your career. So give me where you're at currently with the Kinevin framework and how that influences your day to day. Well, the framework is a model that I use. It's a lens to be used. You know, to, to help problem solve. And <clears throat> I haven't necessarily moved forward or any forward or backwards with how to use it. It's just a tool that I use to help solve problems, especially when it comes to problems that need different responses. But the majority of what we do, it seems with human beings, is putting placing problems into the complex part of the model. And that complex part of the model requires that you are always sensing your environment, you're running experiments, and you're determining what solution to give to the problem. Because a lot of times we talk about best practice, and I think it's, it might be semantics, but best practice is not always best. And that's the article that I had written in, in 2020 with Joe Club is... 
a best practice means that there is a repeatable, predictable solution. And we're talking about a recipe. We're talking about, okay, my car needs gas. I'm going to put gas in it in order for it to run. I know that that problem, if it runs out of gas, I need to put gas in is a simple solution to a simple problem. Whereas human beings, and we're talking about athletes in this situation, are not simple problems to be given simple solutions. And what we were talking about before is that when you're working with athletes, I've been wrapped up in this for sure in my life. And I, and I still fall into this trap, but I see it all the time is that we take athletes as sets and reps and models on a sheet of paper to say, oh, if there is this asymmetry or if they need to be stronger here, that's what we're going to do. And they will therefore be better at their sport. When in reality, there are many components that go into an athlete, all of which interact together, all of which once you change one, it interacts with the other parts and it becomes something that emerges as a solution that you need to have. So taking a holistic look at the athlete is really how I use the Kinevin framework to say, well, I can get this person stronger, but what are the other variables that may be holding them back from being their best self? And are there things that are quantifiable? Are they things that are subjective? Are they things that need to be addressed every day or left alone? And those are only, those are only experiments, little tiny experiments to be done with the athlete or the person every day in order to say, oh, well, when I did this in this context, this is what happened. And then you start seeing these patterns and you can make better solutions because of it. But if you go in with just a prescription to say, I need to do one, two, and three, then you're running a very risky experiment and a very fragile experiment because once something doesn't line up with that, then it fails. And the more things that have to work in order for something to be successful. So if you start layering things, Hey, I need this to happen so that this can happen. So that this can happen. Any chink in the armor is going to lead to a failure or something fragile that, that can be broken instead of seeing where you are, understanding the context, and then making uh, appropriate decisions with the, with the information that you have, and then continuing to do that time and time again. You know, I, I have two children, obviously very young, and we've been watching Frozen 2 quite a bit. And the song, The Next Right Thing, I think it's called, or The Next Best, Next, Next Right Thing. I mean, it's, it's just so appropriate to just continuing to make the next right decision, given the information that you have, you know, knowing what's best, knowing that it might, the outcome might be uncontrollable or it might not go the way that you want. However, as you start making those decisions little by little, you do that over time and it compounds on itself that you can, you can get a lot more out of it. So I know we talk a lot about the, the objective numbers, asymmetries, testing, but those are just a component to what drives success as an athlete. A lot of it in the way I use this framework is recognizing first that those numbers and just lifting weights is not the thing that drives success. It's a part of what drives success and then watching for how those things interact and using my time with people in the weight room between sets, you know, when I'm out on the field or between practice, different, you know, different times that I'm with them, I can start gaining more information and understanding people better so that I can help them be more successful in their sport. And not all of it has to do with just sets and reps, because I think that's just applying a simple pro a simple solution to what really is a complex problem for talking about performance. So in regards to performance, the thing I'm thinking about right now is the interplay of complicated, really patterns <laughs> yep. with the intersection of a complex environment. Yeah. And the example I'm thinking about when you played baseball, you had a ritual when you were approaching the batter's box. Mm -hmm. Would that be an example of a simple strategy prior to a complex environment? And how do they have an influence on each other? Yeah, that's, that's, I think that the, the complicated section is something that might have multiple solutions. So for example, what you're saying is, okay, me as a, as an anxious junior in college going up to bat, you know, game on the line, that is the problem to be solved. Something that can be instituted to help with that is a, a, a routine to keep myself dialed into what I need to be focused on. 
the com- complicated part of that is that there are many different strategies in order to to help with anxiety or help with anything in that in that situation. However, the complex part of that is depending on the context of the situation, different results can happen. Something more specific would be it would take an expert to know what happens with less than two outs on a deep fly ball while, while you're on second base, what to do. But there is a solution that if you tag up or you hang out before you run, it would take an expert to know that. There are multiple things you can do depending on the situation. However, the complicated part of that is that experts are going to debate over what is the right thing. But there is something that if you do that, then that will happen. Because if I just went for my routine and I went up to bat, I can't predict what's going to happen. It's going to still be emergent. Yeah. So without getting too far off track, I think the the difference is that like the complicated solution to me when I think about it is, I'll stay with the car reference, is that to make a car, it requires experts. Like you and I would not know how to do that, but there are a lot of different experts who make cars in different ways. But as long as they make it on that manufacturing line and the and the you know the key turns over and the engine turns over, it's going to start and it's going to run. But a Tesla and a Ford are going to be built in two different ways. Now, for the complex part of it, if you're driving through traffic and you need to get from point A to point B, how you get there might be deterred by an accident or it might be deterred by a detour, things that you may not know. And I think a good representation of this is like the Google Maps app right now as opposed to MapQuest when we were younger where we used to print that out so like you print or, or even a map like you take a map and you're like oh i'm going to go this direction if you say hey i'm just going to do this well you don't know what's ahead of you and there might be traffic there might be a road closure there might be an accident there's a lot of things that can happen where that's trying to apply a simple solution to a complex problem whereas google maps is constantly updating and being aware of its situation that is a complex solution or an emergent solution to a complex problem. So what you're trying to do in dealing with athletes is be Google Maps rather than printed out map or MapQuest, because that's going to give you a lot more real-time information and updated information in order to deal with a complex problem, like someone who is a, a, just a human being going through their own emotional states, going through their own um, thoughts and processes of things, you know, the way they perceive things is different than you may. So just staying updated to people while also getting them stronger and faster and bigger. And like this all, it all goes into the the model of the, the holistic uh, athlete. Which goes into this next level of the bandwidth to handle constant complex problem solving. We, by evolutionary, evolutionary design start to create complicated procedures in mm-hmm. order to handle the, just the absolute entropy in the world around us. Yep. And and I say that because I probably would feel, and I'm reading Popper's conjecture right now, which is essentially nothing's true. Everything is just basically context dependent, even principles. But the problem with that is eventually you'll get just completely overwhelmed and not be able to make any mm-hmm. decision. So do you have any strategies to hey, there's going to be a complex thing, but it's better to use a complicated solution here just in order to, and maybe you titrate that up as you get further along in your understanding and comfortability with it. Yeah, that I mean, that's, that is, that's something I've thought and and spoken with people a lot about is the fact that you'll get, you can't just analyze every single thing that's going on at every single second. However, you can use models, Kinevin Framework is an example, use models to say, okay, I have an understanding that this is how things generally work. And there's a saying, and I don't know who said it, and I'll probably get it wrong, but the idea is that all models are use- all models are wrong, but some are useful. Because a model is not an accurate representation of the world. A model is a, re- a reductionist viewpoint so that you can process more things. But the more you can be aware of the models that you currently use or the ones that you want to, to use, you know, e- even like biases and, and heuristics is like, Oh, am I, am I just confirming my own belief here? Am I looking to confirm my own belief? Am I using the available information to be biased on something? Am I using available, using survivorship bias of saying, Oh, every elite athlete trains like this. Everyone should train like that. When in reality, there's billions of people that train very well that just didn't end up making it. So there's, there's ways to just look at the world to say, hold on, 
am I, am I really right? How am I thinking about this? What model am I using right now? Can I try on a different lens to look at something in a different way? Can I have a conversation who might be with someone who might be looking in a different way? Because both of these, and, and this is the way that I see it, you know, is if we're talking about perception of everything is the way I see it is when I was thinking that, Hey, strength conditioning and model and, and numbers and objective data and getting them stronger is super important or the most important and flip side, hey, the, the human being is the most important. If you go to either side, you're saying, oh, this, this is a perfect system. Neither one is perfect. And you're always, if Popper would say, you're always wrong in some capacity, I'm sure. And actually, I don't know if you would say that, but I'm assuming if he's saying everything is, is made I up. I know Carl, he definitely would say that. Yeah, yeah, Carl would say that, right? Yeah. But he, I like, my point being, you have to be aware that, Everything you're saying is just in your own perception, your own experience built up and that you're always going to be a work in progress. You're always going to be flawed. Your thinking is always going to be wrong in some capacity. But can you stick to it? Keep updating. Oh, I, I made this decision. Can I reflect on that? OK, this is what happened. And you start building patterns of things to say, OK, well, this is generally right, but sometimes it's wrong. And over time, I think people just don't recognize how many times those patterns pop up in a day in, in, in your relationship with people in your, you know, while you're driving in your car, you know, are you getting frustrated with the person in front of you? Like, why am I getting frustrated with the person in front of me? Why am I bothered by that? What is it about me? And just constantly reflecting on things. Then you get to your job and the other things, and they're just the same patterns that pop up all the time. And once you've, once you start to determine your own identity of how you see yourself reacting to things, you can decide whether or not that's the appropriate manner to do that or try on different lenses and different frameworks. And it's just being, I think it's probably just the idea of being aware of things that allows you to be a better coach. And, and if we're going to bring this, I, I, we end up getting too philosophical and no one cares to listen to this. I think if we bring it back to coaching, I think the biggest part about coaching and getting someone else to do something great is a very high confidence in who you are as a person and who you, what kind of value you bring to other people and then doubling down on that value and helping people see who they are and be the best version of themselves. And that could be in a physical sense. That could be being aware of who they are when they're in discomfort and helping them work through that. That can be showing them what their challenges are and, and building something that they can attack and encourage them to improve on and it, it can be f through a physical sense but a lot of like things don't happen in a vacuum the physical doesn't just happen because it's physical it's like there's an emotional aspect there's a there's a uh, psychological aspect that goes along with what happens when you're in discomfort can you practice those things can you be in a different mindset when you are in discomfort um there's a there's a book called the emergency mind and he, uh, Dan, Dan Dworkis has a podcast called the Emergency Mind Podcast, and he is a emergency medicine practitioner in a trauma unit. And he talks about how do you get young nurses and, and ER re like residents to perform under pressure when it's the first time they've ever had to save someone's life. You, that's, a, that's a zero fail. Like you cannot fail those jobs, but you have to throw them into the fire and you don't want them to just fail miserably. So training those aspects of when they're uncomfortable when they're stressed, how to bring their stress down, how to focus, how to be aware, how to know the things that are going to happen. And I think there's a lot of transfer from something like that to coaching or athletes of helping them perform at a high level through strength conditioning, through coaching them through discomfort, through st structuring their days and structuring the routine so that their their body feels good and their their performance can be their performance can be unleashed at the right time with the right physicality, with the right freshness. And that can be done through the objective numbers that we're talking about or the testing and the training and everything that, that goes along with it. But discounting the fact that there's an emotional or psychological aspect that goes along with that, I think would be, would be creating a fragile system or you're not getting out what you can out of the athletes in your time with them. So question, do you find yourself more inclined to reflect after failure and not success or are you equal with reflection on both? I think it's easy to reflect after failure. 
you know, I think it's easy to be like, man, what did I do wrong? Um, like that's your common reflection of like, oh man, what did I do wrong? And I think it's, it seems almost cocky to be like, oh, what did I do right here? So it's hard to do that. But I think if you look at both of those backwards, I think after failure, saying to yourself, what did I do really well here? And what were the reasons that even though I did this well, that it potentially failed? And the opposite is, all right, what were the risks that I ran into that that prevented me from succeeding? And the other side is like, what luck did I run into where I may not even have done this well, but I, I ended up I ended up being successful. So you can be aware of both both on each side. But I think reflection requires all of that because otherwise that's we're talking about confirmation bias. Like when I'm successful, like, oh, I did X, Y, and Z. But I forget I'm gonna discount the other 23 letters of the alphabet, but I did X, Y, and Z, so obviously I was successful. And then from the on the opposite side, <clears throat> either like kicking yourself that, oh man, I sucked at this, but not taking into account that there are a lot of things I did well, or even the other way is like, oh man, well. That was all, that wasn't my fault. That was something else that I couldn't control. It's like, well, are there things that I could have proactively controlled? You know, did I, did I communicate with that athlete that they needed to be there at 6 a.m. and follow up and confirm with them because they burnt me in the past? No, I didn't. I just kind of left it up to them and said, hey, they need to be a grown up. Well, you know, you're, if you're not seeing the pattern that that wasn't enough to get them to show up at 6 a.m., then that's on you. And, the failure right there, the reflection of that is, you know what, this person needs more from me in order to kickstart whatever I need them to do. And so it's just the, I think the humility to say, whatever is required of me, I'm going to do in a sense that the ultimate goal is to help the, help the person, help the athlete be perform better, but also you know, be a better person or whatever your, your goal is as a coach. Do you find it's harder to reflect and evaluate relative contribution on larger macro things like an entire season versus a individual set or training session? For sure. I mean, there's so, there's so much that happens. Like the, the season is a, is complexity on top complexity. Like there's, there's so many things that can happen, will happen, unexpected things. You know, sometimes it, I think a really good example recently was, I was joking around with someone and they kind of seemed in a bad mood. I'm like, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with them? And you come to find out they had a family tragedy, but, you know, may not be someone who wants to talk about that. And so I left that conversation feeling like, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with that guy? Man, it must be on him where once you realize, oh, wait, everyone's going through something in their life. And, and no matter what it is, everyone feels like that's a really important thing to be going through. And now you compound that over an entire season. Someone's playing well, someone's playing poorly, or, or they're having stuff going on at home, or they have a fight with their girlfriend, or you know whatever those things that affect their physical output. Just to, to reduce it down to like, oh, I can say that this person is like has this personality, or they need to get stronger, or they need to get faster, or they you know whatever it is. That would be reducing it down all the way to think that there's there's nothing else going on besides sports. One of the I heard a coach say one day, you know, we tend to think of athletes as they exist while they're in the building, and then when they go home, they just plug themselves in and recharge, waiting to come back. You know, and that's obviously a, a joke as as a flaw of us as coaches to think that people don't have lives or important things outside of the sport or whatever they're doing outside of their job. Everyone has lives. You know, people have kids. People have relationships, people have families, people have stresses over money and, and other things. But to assume that those don't play a factor in someone's physical output, it would be misguided. So I think to answer your question, it's a lot easier to to look at one set and say, okay, I can I can reduce this down to, you know, you weren't focused on the task. Let's get refocused. Rather than saying, oh, this is a over 17 weeks, this is an unfocused person. You know, there's just so many things that, that happen in that time, at least in the moment, in the, in the acute, there are things that can be, you know, addressed to change outcomes in that moment. I find there's a lot of organizational books that focus on task or checklist or standard operating procedures. So using the set example, and I have been really harping on this idea of rep integrity and making sure every rep is based off of some predetermined criteria, yes or no. And then you fractal that out. 
would you say or would you agree or disagree that that idea of checklists is a way to make complex complicated and we can compartmentalize certain aspects of complex things and to better understand it and hopefully it doesn't come off as reductionist based thinking but is that strategy effective over time to handle such complex multivariate environments yeah i mean i think everything we do has to have an aspect of reductionism reductionism otherwise like we were saying you need frameworks and checklists are just a framework they're a model but to assume that making the checklist and doing that is going to take care of it 100 percent of the time that is assuming that it's a complicated or a simple problem what you have to do is you create checklists in order to simplify things not make it a simple problem you simplify things so that you can without consciously thinking too much about it about the checklist be aware of the ulterior things that can happen like what are the secondary consequences all right if we do this checklist all the time great now what are the other things that those are taken care of those are those are routine based what can we do now and i think like rep integrity, all, all of this, the pattern that I see from all of what you're talking about is you need some control in your life. You need some control to say, if these all stay the same and now I'm seeing changes, well, I know that it's not these things. I can figure out what is the independent variable here. And you're constantly running experiments, experiments. And if this experiment just stays exactly the same the entire time, if I keep putting gas in my car and it keeps turning on, Okay, great. I know I've kept that consistent. Now I have gas in my car and it's not turning on. Well, there's something else going on here. I can now diagnose that much quicker or take it to be diagnosed much quicker by an expert so that they can look at the complicated problem and fix that. You know what I mean? So like those checklists, it simplifies things for us, but it doesn't make it simple. Mm -hmm. Checklists are a framework or a model to be used in order to keep things consistent, keep routine. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things I've found at this level is the more routine you can help players be, hey, on a Monday, you do this, on a Tuesday, you do this, on a Wednesday, you do this, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, those are your controls. And the more you can control, the more bandwidth you have for the uncontrollable. And you can see, okay, this is working or it's not working. I can manipulate those controls and see patterns over time to say, okay, well, I'm not feeling fresh on Sunday doing this. Okay, well, maybe we need to move your lift from Friday back to Thursday so you have an extra day to, to, to recover. Or we need to do something fast on Saturday because, you know, you don't practice on Friday, Saturday, you know, Friday, Saturday. Let's get something fast done. So knowing the principles of things and then having the, the models and the frameworks to look at like a checklist allows you to react better and have more agility to when things do go wrong. You know, it's, uh, as you're talking about that, it just had me thinking about, you know, the clocking out, recharge, come home, this like continuum of high school kids and professional athletes probably have a world that revolves around their life outside of their sport they're playing more mm -hmm. so than the actual sport they're playing. You look at high school, you got family, you got travel, you got other things that are outside of football. Then you look at professional sports, you got money, you got family, you got personal aspirations. Where mm -hmm. college is this almost in a fishbowl focus on football with the pretense that this is how you get generational wealth. If you just mm -hmm. lock in, commit, you just pass your passing classes, the formality to play football, you know, the, the doing the generic things you're asked to do as a college football player, being at meetings, being on time, is all a means to an end to be able to make money, to be able to provide for your family or whatever other things that you want from notoriety. But it's an amazing thing to think about in regards to the routine aspect. It's a similar like framework between all three, just almost a different pretense to like manage, all right, you're here, you're locked in, all that other stuff is now outside for the time being. We're in college. It's almost like that stuff is not even a distraction to a degree. Obviously, there's some people that make it a distraction or make it part of their life. But it's almost an interesting phenomenon, which I'm thinking now out loud of that would be a difficult transition for me. And probably why I struggle so much with high school kids is the acceptance that I'm a smaller part of their world or ecosystem than I was yeah. in college. And how do I adapt to that? And I'm assuming it would be similar for me and professional. I'm not saying I couldn't, but it'd be a difficult process to 
unpack that and process that for myself as a coach. Yeah. And the, and the zoomed out idea that I take from that and I think is important for coaches, in my opinion, is different levels of sports or different ages have different views on what that sport is. So a high school athlete might look at playing that sport as part of a social, you know, as part of being part of a tribe or learning how to play the sport or something that gives you social status in college. It might be the attempt to get money somewhere. And now with NILs and all that stuff, which I'm not, I'm not, we don't need to go to that is it's, it's a, it's a perspective of what is football to you in professional sports. It's a job at all different levels. You're seeing things at different, in different ways. So coaching different ages and different, different people, knowing that people see things differently in general, but the patterns that, Oh, a young high school or, you know, a, a young adult in college and an adult in professional, they all see the same sport played with the same ball played with the same rules as something completely different and understanding what that means to them as part of coaching the human being. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that popped to mind is I've done a lot of reading and I'm very interested in the generational aspect about what sport is to different generations. And one thing that I, I think people are seeing is that younger generations are bringing their whole selves to work. And, and there's a lot on in, in organizational psychology on this is that younger people are not compartmentalizing their work and their home life. And part of that might be because of, of being online, being, you know, social media is you're seeing people's whole self and where it used to be, hey, I play sports and I go home and now I do this, which I see professional athletes be very, very good at. Probably one of the reasons they're very successful is they're very good at compartmentalizing or whatever term it is that they can separate home and, and work. But you start seeing it bleed over and that's when you start to have problems or you have to help adjust that if, if there's a negative effect. Sometimes it's a positive effect because people are in good moods. But younger generations seem to be bringing their whole selves to work where there is no separation. That is their identity. It's Their identity is as that person. And that might make it harder for them to compartmentalize or shift out of the gear that, oh, man, my I'm in a bad mood or I'm upset or I'm happy or you know, these things that might interfere or assist with, with being successful in their sport. But as you talked about that, that's what jumped to mind is that different generations may have different patterns of how they act about sports and why they act a certain way with sports. And I think that you see players' voices get a bigger opinion on social media and they have a, a, a means to get their their feelings out and in ways in which they believe that coaching is important. And I think being what I'm trying to say with this is that's all a complex problem in itself and being able to understand people, being able to understand what someone's motivations are or how they interpret what the sport is to them or why they're playing and what that means to them is very valuable in coaching them because you know then how to speak their language or what, what is going to, get someone to do something very hard, which is most of coaching. Just very simple, man. ELE, man. Everybody love everybody, man. That's it. So, Will, thank you, man. This was an awesome conversation. Kinevin, that a framework. So, yeah. and thank God I have software where I can actually correct what I, how I enunciate things. So, hopefully I can figure that I, out. I hope that when I listen to your part, it's like, and we're talking about the Kinevin framework. <laughs> Kinevin. Yeah, yeah, definitely would be like that. It's gonna be great. I can't wait. It's not gonna sound awkward or weird at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Will, man. This is awesome. It's a cool full circle moment, too, to see where you were at a couple years ago and why you were just, you know, tipping your foot in the water and now you're now you're full blown world famous expert on the Kinevin framework. So so this is awesome, man. Love it. Thanks. All right, buddy. Bye. Bye. We got a ton that we just unpacked in this episode. One of the things that I want to get really clear is that this is a framework, just like Newell's, just like Erickson's, that you're going to have to really invest some time and mental energy into. You get better with practice. So as you start to break down decisions, you learn how to evaluate certain situations and apply a certain model or framework. You get good on the front end, but you get better on the back end, meaning that you start to learn how to debrief and evaluate the decisions you made post 
and you become more effective for the future. So the real secret sauce here is look through the resources, sit with this information, start to slowly tease this into your daily practice so you can become more competent. As always, become a member of phpodcast.com to get more information on all these resources and get access to not only the web show, the resources, the transcripts, but you also get access to a forum, which to be honest, probably is the best asset you can get from this. So become a member of phpodcast.com. You will become really, really good at stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.